I'm Jesse Feldman, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hi, this is Ilya Friedman. I am flying solo today as my co-host Ben Rock is off directing. He uh, won't be able to join us because uh, he's doing what he uh, was put on this earth to do. So you'll just have to listen to me tell you about today's show, which is Jesse Feldman. Jesse Feldman is a longtime friend of mine, incredibly talented, a great customer of Hot Rod Cameras, and nominated for an AOC award for Interview with the Vampire, the new AMC series. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Jesse Feldman. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm joined now by uh, Jesse Feldman. Jesse, it's so great to have you on the show. Uh, We have been wanting to make this happen for such a long time. Uh, Welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So happy to be here. Congratulations on your nomination for an ASC award for Interview with the Vampire, the new series that's on AMC. I I was delighted to read that when the nominations came out. Thank you. I was too. I'm sure. So tell me about you and this project. I want to talk off the bat about this AMC series that's based on the uh, original Anne Rice source material. And I'm going to preface this by saying I prefer this to both the book and the movie that came before it. (laughs) I I think that this this is really a remarkable series. Uh, How did you get involved? Uh, It was one of those projects where my name got passed on to producers a, a handful of ways. Brandon Trost, DP, an old friend of mine, uh, had passed my name on, I know. Friend of the show. He's been on. Yeah. Love Brandon. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think my agents also submitted me for it. So it was kind of a hit him from all angles and got a meeting. And clearly they liked you. And you're splitting the show with David Tattersall, who, let me tell you, no slouch. Uh, I've been a fan of his work since Radioland Murders back in the early 90s. So, uh, I mean, (laughs) this guy is incredible. He's done uh, tons and tons of stuff. Had you worked with David before, before this project? I hadn't, but when I got offered the chance to, I ran with it. I mean, I was so excited. You know, David has shot so many important movies, you know, over the years. So I was I was just humbled to be offered the same job. Tell me a little bit about the collaboration, because whenever DPs have to uh, split a series the way that uh, that you guys are doing it, I think for the first season, it's is it four and three or something like that? It's pretty much 50 50. Talk about your your collaboration and talking about the look and how to have that continuity across you know, each other's shows. In our case, we both took charge of our own episodes, you know, Mm. even though David started out the series, he was very clear with me that I had complete creative control over my episodes and I could essentially do whatever I wanted. You know, that being said, I think it's part of any DP's job when there's more DPs on the show to find some visual cohesion, you know, between the episodes, because the show should not feel like a different show between episodes unless there's a story reason for that. But we had a wonderful collaboration. Like, I really enjoyed it. He's such a kind person and such a smart person. He was obviously more involved than me in the beginning, beginning, as he shot the first two episodes. But we had a couple phone calls and things before either of us started and made some pitches and, like, 
you know, deciding on aspect ratio on camera, on crew, on all that stuff. It was a, it was a mutual thing. Yeah. It feels, I won't say that there, there isn't a few hallmarks of different style as you go between episodes that you shot and episodes that David shot, but they're definitely clearly the same show, the same universe, the same everything. So the conversations and work that you guys did together in pre-production and as you went along clearly shows. I've seen other shows where when a different DP comes in, it almost feels like a different series. It almost feels like like something else. And there's really, really good cohesion. Uh, and I got to say that it's a really contrasty, fun split of looks that you have between the more or less present day, like, you know, a, a 2022 portion of the show, and then also this sort of turn of the century New Orleans. Can you talk a little bit about how you decided to keep each of these periods of time separate, but also definitely make it feel uh, cohesive. I mean, the look came from the characters ultimately and came from the story. And so in Dubai, Louis is very controlled. He's very, you know, at least he's trying to be very controlled and he wants to control everything. So we wanted that to have a, a more sleek, controlled feel to it. You know, in his apartment, it's all futuristic almost. And his windows are controlled for his vampiric, you know, needs and all that. So the look of it was meant to be very streamlined and very clean. And obviously the production design went a long way towards that too. And, and you know, like on this series, we, we did go back to certain places sometimes. I mean, there's a lot of location work, you know, in which case we might not have been necessarily shooting the same things. And we may not have been shooting the same angles between the episodes, but there were approaches that either David would start first or I would start first, and then we would both sort of be informed on whoever lit it for the first time, at least as a basis, you know, not like we had to do that again, but we did at least bounce off each other in that way. Uh, yeah, I think it's great. If you've got a good working relationship with everyone else around you who is invested in what you're doing to keep you honest, to keep you honest about like, hey, you know, I think that you're right that it's certainly the camera operator's job, but almost everyone's job to help keep you honest. Like if they see a mistake or if they see a potential mistake or a potential opportunity to say something when appropriate, because that's where I think the best, sometimes the best unexpected stuff comes from. It's like, oh, did you see that we have, we have this option right here? Do we have th- this sort of uh, situation? Is there a time that you can think of on the show where someone did make a suggestion that ended up being pitch perfect or kept you from making a terrible mistake because someone else came in, like your operator or something like that, who said, hey, why don't we why don't we do this a little bit differently? I mean, I think it probably happened constantly. You know, I'm a firm believer in in the best idea wins and it doesn't matter where it came from. It definitely doesn't need to come from my head. As a DP, we are we're constantly making decisions. And the end result of a shot is hundreds of those decisions being made. So I think in the same way that I might notice a light hitting a surface in a certain way and like it or change it, I can make a decision on that same way as I might make a decision of an operator coming to me and saying like, oh, what do you think about this? It's like, I'm open to ideas coming from anywhere. And you know, obviously there's a chain of command and there's like a flow of set and set a kit and all that. But I try to empower my crew to, to be willing to come to me with an idea if, if they have a good one. And I think it's fun for them too. I mean, like, you know, when I was an assistant, I would love if I got to give input, you know, it, it made it much more worthwhile spending those hours, you know, and making those life sacrifices if, if I felt like I had some input into the final products, you know. And they know that if I say no, that's, 
that's fine. And that's not like, doesn't mean I didn't like the idea necessarily. It just means it didn't work for what we were doing, you know? And it might be the, the save of the century, you know? It might be like, you know what? That is the best idea. And we just saved half an hour because I like that the most, you know? Uh, we had Ron Howard on the show and Ron Howard famously has said before that, yes, best idea wins. And that if someone else has an idea that is better than his, he wants to do that. He like, you know, why limit like you, you have to be honest enough to say, like, is my idea actually better than this other idea? And he says, and if it's a split, if it's a tie, he'll try to go with the other person's idea because the other person's idea might actually have some extra level of genius in it that he just hasn't realized yet. Which, as you're telling me, this is, you know, great ideas can come from anywhere. It's really true. And I think that especially on set, when you've got the trust of a crew and, and you know that you're not going to get your head bit off for being out of line by making a suggestion, which there are some people who don't want any suggestions whatsoever. So it's a very different set when you're working in that collaborative mode, when you're working in this place where everyone might have a uh, and, and I think that the, the trick to this is that you have to be respectful. You can't just constantly be, be like, oh, actually, I've got all these other ideas here for you. You have to really pick your battles of like this is a real opportunity and this really is the thing that I want to draw your attention to. I think that it, it's super cool that you like to run your sets that way because you never know what is uh, what is out there that it's so easy to have myopia. It's so easy to to you know have your blinders on where you you kind of are going down this tunnel and then if someone else sees something, uh, how much richer does the experience become if you decide to yeah take that that detour? Totally, and I mean that that is collaboration, right? That's a, that's a definition of collaboration, and and one idea leads to another, leads to another, leads to another, and then the final product is hopefully that best combination of all these ideas. That might be uh, collaboration, but you and I have definitely worked for people who did not believe that was collaboration. <laughs> There's definitely sure. people out there who think that collaboration is I I said this and you did this, and that was the collaboration. Sure, <laughs> sure, yeah, and and I mean I think I think it's worth noting too, like it can't be a free for all, you know, like it, it can't be everybody suggesting a million ideas every minute, you know. There has to be, you know, you have to respect like. You know, maybe I'm not going to go to Jesse with every thought in my head. But, you know, if I have a good one, you know, let's try. I worked on a Bollywood film once and it was it seemed very much like that. It seemed like there was five assistant directors and each one of them constantly had an idea. So it was uh, it was uh, definitely a, a huge departure. But we're not talking about me. We're talking about you, which makes me actually want to jump back in time now. I mean, for the longest portion of your career, I I know you and knew you as a, an operator. You were an operator more than uh, a cinematographer, but I've, I've known you back from the days you were a focus puller from way back when. Uh, yeah. We met on that Anthony Hopkins short that you did, the, the Greenpeace uh, PSA commercial thing, back yeah. with the Dalsa 4K camera. I think it was like the second or third project ever on that camera. That was really awesome. And it was like you, me, a tiny crew and Anthony Hopkins. Uh, you know, you've had this incredible career that has gone on now for it's been decades and it was decades but it was a long time you'd been working before that where did you get the bug how did you start off in this industry how did you decide that that working in the camera department was going to be your jam oh man well first of all quick shout out to Florence Stadler the DP of that project, of course yes, I'm still Florian. friends with uh, I got the bug in high school like both my parents had a 35 millimeter still camera that I borrowed and started shooting stills with for a high school class and my, my high school was not like photography was not a big thing there but there, there was uh two classes so I took those two classes and uh and then I think I went on and did like an independent study in it that I somehow convinced the school to give me credit for and everything 
And a friend of mine had gotten a digital still camera and it was, it was like early digital still cameras. They weren't nearly as you know prolific as they are today, but it allowed me to experiment with it and just like, oh, I can take a picture of something and like, it's free basically, you know? And there was a, there's a website called Sarabji.com, I think it was, that was this dude in New York and he just took pictures of things in New York City and like he called, he called them the big picture and he posted them every day. And I remember seeing them and again, like early days of the internet, you know, where everything was super cool just because it was like, oh, this is the internet and this is like a thing that somebody else did from some other place, you know. And those pictures, like they taught me that you could tell a story through an image because I was seeing this image and I was like either making up a story myself or thinking of the story he wanted. I mean, who knows? But just the idea of a still image, like communicating something. And that was like mind blowing for my little brain. And, and I don't think I put, I, don't, I didn't really put it together until I was older. But looking back on it, like it was a real aha moment for me. And so I got more and more into it. And I did a program called Quartz Mountain. I grew up in Oklahoma City. And there, there's this program called Quartz Mountain that was like an interdisciplinary arts thing. And they had poetry, singing, dancing, music, uh, photography, videography, all these different artistic disciplines. And it was super cool. Like it was very well funded and every kid who went got a full scholarship. So it was free to go. So it was very accessible. And it was just like this very cool thing in Oklahoma that like we didn't have other things like that. And I got accepted into the videography program because I like had kind of gotten interested in in the video side of things you know in the stills world i shot pictures of bands and i did weddings and i did whatever kind of photography i could do at the time if, if someone had the opportunity to, to have you point a camera you were going to take it 100 percent. yeah i was into it didn't matter and then after that program like i learned what a cinematographer was during that week like i didn't know the job existed prior to that and immediately it was like oh yep that's what i want to do like easy. And so, and I'd already been accepted into USC for a psychology degree. So I was like, well, they have a great film school. I'll just go there and transfer like easy, which is sort of what I ended up doing. Six months after moving to LA and starting to go to USC, I got a job as a camera assistant outside of school on a music video, which was a job I should never have gotten. Like I was very I mean, I'd never been an assistant before and, and I ended up getting hired as the first. Oh, and no. so my, my first day on set, aside from like being a PA on a couple student films was pulling focus on 35 on Steadicam on the beach. Uh, wow. That's some trial by fire right there. A hundred percent. And, and the DP, Graham Viterfus was oh, like, Graham. Very, I, I, I've yeah. gra oh, that's great. Well, you know what? You, you probably couldn't have had a kinder soul to you exactly. know, welcome you into this industry. And uh, he was an NSC guy as well, too. I'm assuming that you were upfront about your experience level with him. So he knew going in. Totally. Okay. Good. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Me, like the, the producers who, you know, they were new at this too. Had, a, had hired me and one other camera assistant to do the job. Neither of us had ever been a camera assistant. So uh, Graham had his own 35 package. So we went to his apartment with his movie cam compact. That's right. And, and Graham showed us like how to load the mags, how to load the camera. Apparently I picked it up slightly more quicker than the other guy. And so Graham's like, well, if we have to do this, then uh, you'll be the first. So I was like, okay, great. 
you know, but he was very kind and he walked me through it all. And it could have been a very different scenario, you know, if, if he hadn't have been so kind and like realized that like, well, this is what we're working with. So let's make it work. I've known Graham a long time as well, too. So this must have been late 90s. When was this? This was 2001. 2001. Okay, gotcha. So 2001, you're going to SC, you're uh, you're working out on set. When do you get into, when do you make the leap from camera assisting to operator? There was not like one day where I was like, you know what? I'm not I'm doing assisting. I'm only going to operate. Yeah. Well, so I joined the union in 2007 as an operator. So I, I guess by that point, I wasn't assisting anymore. I think I might have kept assisting for Florian for a little bit beyond when I was assisting for everybody else, just because it, it was a way to like, it was all commercial work and it was a way to just like keep making a living. And, and, and you know what? I, I think that every AC, I think what you're describing, every AC that I know who's risen up through the ranks, you have those couple of clients. You have those couple of people who you... Anytime they ask, you want to work with them. It's so much fun. You you have, you know, it, it doesn't feel like working. And I'm assuming that Florian Stadler was probably that for you, too. I, I love Florian. He's a great client of Hot Rod. He's a great human being. I have a, a feeling that as an AC, you're really dependent on your relationship with the DP for your, your paycheck, for where you're going to get your next job. When Florian reaches, reaches out to you, is it just like, how can I move everything around so I can still do that? So I can still have that, that, you know, that bond, that human connection, do that work, whatever it is, because you, you like the people you like, you like what you're doing. Yeah. And it, and it was also like a good safety net. I've loved every job in the camera department, honestly. And like, even, even now I miss operating. Like I wish, I wish I could operate all the time. It's the best job ever. You get to watch other DPs work. You probably don't miss speed loading mags out of a, you know, changing tent on the beach in 110 degree weather. So there's, there's probably a few instances that you, that you don't miss. But uh, but yes, your point's well taken. It's a different discipline. It's different muscles that you got to exercise as as you move through the department. Yeah. I know you're a fancy DP now, but uh, you were still doing operating jobs, all, uh, you know, pretty recently. If if another season of Mandalorian comes around or any of those things, would you still be operating or no? Those days are past you now. You're you're only a DP. You know, it's it's honestly hard to say because like all the Star Wars stuff, I've just operated on those as a day player, like in between shooting gigs, which have been super fun because I'm able to like go DP a season of this show and then come back home and work in town for a little bit and be involved with Star Wars. I mean, like the child me is just so excited about that. Like every every day I went out on those jobs was like, you know, let's just play around for a little bit. You know, it's it's amazing. And I'd love to get more involved in that world as a DP, of course, too. You know, I kind of wonder if there is a stigma to like DPs operating. And that's, you know, that's a longer conversation that we can have within our industry. But like, I, I wish there wasn't at all because I love operating. If I got the same fulfillment I get from DPing as an operator, I would just do that. It's less stress. You don't have to travel as much. Like, great. But I don't. Like, there is something inside me that I want to say that I can only say as a DP, you know. But it's also really fun to operate and it's really fun to watch other DPs work and to learn from watching other DPs. 
You're, you're not the only one who feels this way. I mean, famously, Roger Deakins loves, of course, to operate every shot himself. He doesn't want to have an operator. And I know that that actually that runs afoul sometimes of, of union rules and regulations that you must have operators. So if someone gets a job and they work on set, but they don't necessarily operate the camera because, you know, some DPs want to have that level of bifurcating their brain to two different disciplines. And I will tell you, though, isn't it luxurious when you are working as a DP to have a really good operator? I mean, it's like it almost feels like a step backwards because the moment you actually have that and you're working with a great operator, it's like your life just got so much easier. Uh, you know, you have all you have a million things to think about. And then you have to think about all the things as the as the camera is rolling as well too. Uh, talk about that. Talk about, you know, the relationship between the, the DP and the operator, because you've been on both sides of, the, of that situation. And I'm sure, of course, like everyone, you've operated your own stuff. So how do you look at the role of the operator? Is it, is it a luxury? Is it a necessity? Is it somewhere in the middle? Does it depend on the project? What's the DP operator relationship for you? Yeah, I think ultimately it's it's a necessity usually. As much as I love operating, I generally hate operating when I'm shooting as well. It, you really, like for me, I don't get to use my whole brain. And, and especially with the speed of TV, for example, like I'm making so many decisions as we're rolling. You know, we're making small lighting tweaks that are imperceptible as you're going, but that are important to the shot. And I can't do that if I'm operating, you know, it's, it's just two different parts of your brain, even though they're, they're very intertwined. And like, obviously as a DP, I'm thinking about the operating and I'm giving notes on the operating and I'm, I am very specific with my operators in terms of what I want. But at the same time, like I know how much an operator can contribute and, and can make a shot better. So when I'm a DP, it's like, well, why wouldn't I want that? You know, and, and especially if there's multiple cameras, which there almost always are now, you know, if you're operating one camera, you can't watch the other cameras, you know, like simple as that. I think. Absolutely. So many shows these days are, are multi cameras, not just because of necessity, because of, of speed, but it's really part of the storytelling. Do you, do you have a preference for, for working single camera versus multi camera? I think the ideal situation is having multiple cameras, but not being forced to use them. Mm. I think I do my best work when I'm on a job where I have that power to say, let's do this with one camera or let's do this with three cameras. Let's do this with five cameras, which is better for everybody, not only just like the schedule and the money saved through time, but if I do this setup with three cameras and I do the next setup with one camera, maybe I have more time for that one camera setup and I can really make that amazing if I've saved time on this three camera setup. I think, again, I do my best work when I get to decide that and I'm not forced into shooting with multiple cameras if it doesn't make sense for the scene. But at the same time, maybe you don't need those three cameras. You know, maybe story-wise, it's better just to tell it through one shot, which I like when I get to decide that. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, Jesse, as you and I have known each other a long time here, we reconnected probably about five, six years ago after you had had this radical life change where you left the, the local L.A. industry. If I recall correctly, you went to Morocco. You completely reorganized your life and started working in Morocco. Can you talk a little bit about that whole experience and maybe how that informs your work today? Well, as time goes on, that was about 10 years ago now. Oh, my God. Uh, 10 years. <laughs> oh, um, wow. Yeah. You came back 10 years ago? Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, my ex-wife and I moved to Morocco with the idea of just living somewhere else for a year. We, we wanted to take a year off 
of sort of normal life and just live somewhere else and get another experience and uh, ended up choosing Morocco as the place to do that. As life goes, it didn't exactly work out as planned. And, and six months into that, we ended up splitting up and getting a divorce. But we both stayed there independently of one another. And I had started working there in the industry, shooting local commercials and working on foreign projects coming in as well. And it ended up being sort of a period of time in my life where I wasn't really living anywhere. And I was just traveling from between different countries and, and, you know, coming back to L.A. to work for a little bit and then going somewhere else or working somewhere else. And it was a really interesting time in my life. It was I was really glad that I did it just to pack up everything and sell everything and go and kind of put life on pause to do something else, I think was really, really useful for me just in terms of life experience and in terms of like opening my eyes to more things and to, and to seeing things differently. And it was easier to do than you would think as well. Like I, I think, you know, this monumentous thing that we, especially growing up in the U S think that is moving abroad for a little bit, like it's not that hard, really. You just make certain decisions and you do certain things and then you're there, you know? And it was a really interesting handful of years of my life. Well, I think a lot of people get afraid of maybe like language and adapting to culture and not seeing people uh, who they have good relationships here in their life. I mean, I know you say it's easy, but there's a lot of like mental gymnastics and life rearrangement you, you have to do for this sort of thing. And if I recall correctly, when we started talking about it, Morocco just sort of like became a base of operations and you had sort of a almost nomadic lifestyle for a while. And really, it reminds me a lot. And I'm going to throw a quick shout out to Abe Martinez, because Abe Martinez, if there's anyone I know who has mastered the nomadic DP lifestyle, it's him. And uh, and you guys worked together at some point, too, if I recall correctly, too. Didn't you guys work on the Chai together or was it? Was it? We, we both shot different seasons of the Chai. Oh, okay. We were never there at the same time. Oh, interesting. But yeah. Well, I think that's really cool. Can you talk a little bit about the nomadic existence of this career, of, of how you've made that work before now coming back and being settled back in Los Angeles again? It's, it, I, I haven't worked, I haven't done a full-time job in LA in four or five years now. Oh, like, wow. It's unfortunate that that is the case. And I think, honestly, I'm kind of experiencing a bit of a backlash towards it now. Like, once I did move back to LA LA became more and more my home again. And now I would love to be here more, you know, and it's, it's almost a necessary evil. And it's a gift sometimes to travel and go, and go to you know, new and interesting places. When you go to the same places around the U.S., you know, over and over again, it gets a little more boring, you know, from from my perspective. I'm not going to name places, but, uh, you know, <laughs> you, uh, you know, it's, it's okay for you to like places more than the U S my, my favorite city in the world is Tokyo. Tokyo is, is an incredible city. It's, I mean, you, you might have a, a favorite place that's outside the U S there's, there's no shame in that. You probably get pretty good though of living out of a suitcase. It sounds like, it sounds like you're an excellent packer now and traveler to these different places. I think ar- in my experiences around the world, like it's not a different language as far as like set goes. I mean, sometimes it can be a literal different language that is being spoken, but as far as like, as the language of cinematography, you know, like that it's a fairly universal language around the world. Like everybody has their own way to speak it. Maybe different departments are in charge of, of something specific here and there. I mean, you get that in the States too. Like picture car might be the props department one place and might be transpo another place. So you learn those little, little different nuances. But I think the, the sort of language of cinematography is universal. And, and I don't know whether that's because it's all been modeled after the U.S. 
or, you know, you just adjust to wherever you are. If, if lighting and grip is separate, then it's separate. If it's together, then it's together. And you just adjust and learn to work with that. You know, like we are chameleons as cinematographers. Jesse, I happen to know this about you. You're also an inventor. You built a uh, very, very popular piece of gear that uh, is used by operators all over the world called the Ergo Rig. And it's not like anything else that exists out there. You, do you want to talk at all about your story of how uh, this came to be? Sure. I mean, this came to be out of necessity for me to keep operating. Since I started operating in one form or another when I was 18, I have had a lot of heavy cameras on my shoulder over the years. And and I just powered through it. And eventually that caught up with me and uh, had all kinds of back issues. So I had to stop doing handheld work for a while. And I didn't like that. So I decided, like, maybe there's a way to solve this and allow me to keep doing handheld, but not injure myself. And that led me down the R&D process um, of coming up with the Ergo Rig. And I should add here, you're not a small, weak guy, but I think that there's a lot of people out there who, who don't work in the industry who don't really understand how punishing operating can be on your body and how often operators have to have 40 pounds of gear strapped to themselves for hours and hours every single day. Was there any moment when you were on set where you were just like, I, I can't, there's got to be something else like I can do here. Was there a, a eureka moment for you? Well, I think after two seasons on Sons of Anarchy, which was a largely a handheld show, and I did a little bit on Veep right after that. And like, that was sort of the breaking point for my back physically. And so that was the point where I had to sort of stop. And then I was working on Neighbors 2, I think, with, with Brandon Trost again. Mm-hmm. And it was all handheld with a heavy studio Alexa. And we were we were using these, like a combo stand with a tennis ball on the top and bottom oh, wow. uh, without the legs, just to balance on the camera or to bounce the camera on just to take the weight because these, there were these long takes, all this improv, and, and you're just standing there with the camera on your shoulder, you know? Oh, wow. And that, that was sort of the eureka moment of like, oh, if the weight is just transferred, but in a way where I can still control the camera as if it was on my shoulder, that's the problem that needs to be solved. Like, how can we solve that problem? And then I went to Home Depot and bought some parts and like went and just made some stuff myself and took a, a belt from something I previously had and just put it all together. And just in my, in my bedroom, put something heavy on my shoulder. And I was like, oh, I don't feel this. That, that was my eureka moment, I guess, if I had one. Nice. Uh, I want to pull this back to cinematography. I didn't want to go too far down uh, the, the, the other rabbit hole here. But uh, so there wasn't a day that just suddenly you woke up and you're like, I'm a DP now and I'm just going to keep doing DP work. But it had to scratch a particular itch for you. And it's definitely a different muscle. It's definitely a different way to work. What do you like about the lighting and the, the director of photography position versus operating, which is its totally own discipline, which it's it's totally different, different sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, they really are totally different jobs, even though they're very related. I mean, obviously, as an operator, you're not considering lighting in the same way, and you're not in charge of lighting at all. And lighting is a huge part of cinematography. It's arguably, like, that's it. I mean, obviously, the camera work, too, but I don't know. It's it's a huge part of it. And I think, like I was saying earlier, there's something I want to say. Like, there's something I want to communicate with other people. I think as... As artists, we just want to communicate with other people. I think ultimately that's that's why I do it at least. You know, like 
you can say an artist does make art for themselves and they do like I guess I'm communicating with myself in that way but ultimately in filmmaking I'm doing it to communicate with others you know with other filmmakers with audience with everybody as a DP I get to do that much much more having the full control of the image really like that's what allows me to communicate yeah absolutely I know this might sound like a little bit of a departure I want to go back to some relatively obscure credit from your history, which I particularly liked. I believe I saw the movie at Sundance and it's Quinceañera. You've got a ton of of credits. Like you've got, as my co-host Ben Rock loves to say, a murderer's row of cool projects you've worked on over the years. And I know you were a a camera operator on, on that movie. It was a movie that was really, really well regarded and completely seemed to get buried and didn't go, didn't ever have the sort of breakthrough that, uh, you know, I thought it was going to, but it seems to be at least now remembered as a solid indie film. Everyone who works in this industry for any length of time, you might end up doing something that's really, really cool, but almost, I should say, very few people end up seeing. Can you talk a little bit about this project in particular or just working on cool projects that never really kind of break through the way that, you know, you feel like maybe they should? Yeah, this project in particular, Eric Stielberg shot it. Mm-hmm. On Quintanera, I only worked on the reshoots for it, mm. which was funny because Eric had asked me to come pull focus on them. And I said, uh, do you have an operator? Can I operate on them? Because I was really trying to move up at that time. And and he said, well, do you want to pull focus and operate? Or I, I probably suggested that. I was like, I'll do both. You know, I can, <laughs> I can pull my own focus. And, and I think he looked at me and he was like, well, uh, sure, Jesse, like, if you think you can do that, you know, give it a try. And I was super pumped. I was like, yeah, great. Let's do it. You know, I was, I don't know how old I was at the time, maybe 21. I don't know. And I remember we were shooting a shot like where there was a specific rack focus from somebody in the foreground to somebody up on some stairs and I was operating and pulling focus. It was a very low budget thing, you know. There, oh yeah. I, there, there was probably a second AC, but I, I don't fully remember to be honest. And I remember the first take, like I did it, and I did it well. And I remember him looking at me and like kind of like smiling or something, like, "Okay, I guess, I guess you can do both," you know. But I think in in terms of like your your other question about smaller projects that maybe don't have as many people see them. I think that's something I still struggle with today in terms of picking projects, you know, because I like to do things that people are going to see, but I also like to do things that have a good story and and have something good behind them, a good message, you know, something good to say. And those don't always align. You don't always get both of those. And I don't know. I I think you just have to pick projects based on your guess of the right combination of the two. I think that is really good advice. And uh, I think that if um, this conversation should hopefully reinforce anything for anyone out there listening is that it's never an overnight success story and that you have to kiss a lot of frogs and that you have to figure out uh, what your journey is going to be. Jesse, I think this is a great place for us to leave it. Where can people find you if they want to track you down? If they want to, do you have a website? Are you on social media? Do you do any of those things? Or are you, are you one of those people or do you hide? Uh, I'm not the most active, uh, but I do have Instagram, just Jesse M. Feldman, uh, website, same, jessemfeldman.com or jessefeldman.com, same thing. 
Jesse, thank you so much for being on the show. Congratulations again on your ASC award nomination. That's super cool. I'm going to be watching with interest. I know it's coming up here relatively soon. And uh, I can't wait to have you come back on the show and talk about some of the other stuff. I know that I've already teased a little bit about what I want to talk about next time. But yeah, I I can't wait to have you come back again. And uh, it'll be a lot of fun, I think. I, I kept waiting for you to bring it up, uh, you know, and, and I'll be I'll be more than happy to come back. I, you know what? I don't I don't want to. It's a deep tease right now. Anyone who's listening to the show, I, I don't even want to mention the, the show, the things that you did that I want to get into really deeply. I want to bring back a couple other people. I want to make it you know a, a whole like panel. I'm making a a pact with myself and you, and hopefully everyone else involved that we can arrange schedules that it can happen like in 2023. I don't want an, another year to go by where this doesn't happen. It uh, I, I think it will be an epic, amazing episode of the podcast, and I'll, I'll just leave it there. Excellent. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thank you.